Hi, everyone. Just wanted to hop on here before this first post-Pesach episode with some uh, information about the podcast and the uh, some programming notes. So, uh, first of all, I've gotten some nice feedback on the uh, Mishpacha article interview about the podcast and myself. So, if anyone has any more feedback, can email me as farmchatter at gmail.com. And I'll put a link to the article one more time in the show's notes if anyone is interested in checking that out. Um, now, for the podcast... It's going to be still, you know, the regular episodes coming out over the next, you know, going forward um, and a variety of different topics. If anyone has guest suggestions or anyone, you know, wants to sponsor an episode, email me. Please email me, farmshedder.gmail.com as well if you want to sponsor an episode. There's also in the show's notes, there's a link through PayPal. It's on the website as well. Um, uh, Also, regarding a programming note, um, the series on Spain and Spanish Jewry, which is... Roughly, I'll talk more about this in the intro when the series begins over the next, it, it, and I'm not sure exactly when, but it'll be some point over the next couple of weeks. But it's going to be about the beginning, you know, Jews of Spain under Muslim Spain, the Reconquista, Christian Spain, um, and then the riots of 1391. And then there's going to be on the, um, the Inquisition. And there will be about the Converso, Morano, New Christian, we're going to call them the expulsion of 1492, the, for, the exp- forced conversion, expulsion of Portugal in 1497, and then after that and so on. So there's going to be, there's going to be South America, there's going to be a lot in there. I'll talk more about this at length again when this series uh, starts. It's 20, epi- 20 episodes as of now, maybe even get bigger, but it's 20 and there will be some other ones, uh, you know, uh, associated with it. That generally, that series, as well, the, the podcast won't become uh, Spain chatter. The the that series will be like with the Shops HV series in the past. It will be on um, Wednesdays. Uh, I think it will be the Sundays will be a standard episode. Wednesday will be the Spain series. It, there may be a little bit different here and there, but generally, generally, that's how uh, the series is going to go. Um, if anyone has any. Obviously, you don't know the different episodes and what the topics I'm covering. But if anyone has get and anyone has guest suggestions, topic suggestions for that, you can still email me farmchatter@gmail.com. It could be I can still incorporate it into this series. Um, something else that I'm going to be doing is as like a sidebar. Some of those Sundays episodes will be, uh, for example, I have already recorded a biography on the Rush on the Ramban. So those will be separate. They're not part of the series, um, but. You know, I don't live in Spain. There are separate things. They will be, you know, kind of concurrently with the series, something like that. So, do you have anyone has suggestions for things like that? Email me in general for for this series. Uh, you can reach out and uh, email me. So, stay tuned for that, as well as again regular episodes, suggestions, things like that. Um, feel free, feel free to email me. And if anyone is, a, you know, for any new listeners and old listeners as well, especially if you if you listen on Apple, if you can rate the podcast and if you review it as well. It is uh, much appreciated. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another edition of the Svarim Chatter podcast. On this episode of the podcast, I'm going to be joined by Dr. Akiva Sternberg, who is the author of a number of books on the history of halacha, and including his newest one, which is titled Eretz Lo Nodat, uh, or in English, uh, Terra Incognita, Halachic Challenges of the Jewish Immigration to America, 1850 to 1924. And uh, as we'll see, there's a lot of, you know, uh, selections from from Svar. There's a lot of things taken from Shalos Chuvas from the time period. So there's a lot of really interesting uh, historical and, as I said, history of halacha things in the book. So thank you, Dr. Sturmberg, for joining me. Thank you very much for having me. Pleasure to be here. 
Okay, let's start off. Tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and your background. Sure. Um, I was born in Boston many years ago, and my childhood and adolescence, uh, I was raised both in Boston and in Israel on and off a year or two here, a year or two there. Um, my adult life, most of my adult life has been uh, in Israel. I was trained as an economist. I have a bachelor's degree in economics from Johns Hopkins University and a PhD in business administration from Bar-Ilan University. And my professional career has been in positions, in senior positions in the Israeli banking industry and as a lecturer in the Reichman University in uh, Herzliya. But throughout my professional career, I've also invested time in the study of the history of uh, halakha. And as you said before, I've published a number of books on that, on that topic, the last one being this, uh, the book, uh, Eretz Lomodar. Okay. And then perhaps at the end, you can mention the other ones if you want to at the end of the podcast. So uh, how did you become interested in halakhic history? Like you said, your, your you know, uh, working life, so to speak, is different as in e- economics, not in this. Right. I think there, there are three dimensions that I can sort of answer that question. The first is just by studying halakha, anybody who even opens up the, the Shulchan Aruch or the Mishnah Bura or, or, or any other halakhic book and looks at the halakha, uh, can actually see changes in halakha over time. In other words, things that were practiced in one way, certainly in the time of the Gemara, we don't necessarily practice them the same way today. Means That means, of course, that there have been changes in halakha, which means there has to be a history. There has to be a reason why things uh, have changed. And in a number of issues, we know the reasons. I mean, simple examples like the issue of a Prusbul or Cherem Rabbeinu Gershom, which changed many facets of, of uh, Jewish law, we know the reason why these things happen, why these changes have actually occurred. But in other issues, we don't, we don't actually know the reason, and, and one has to sort of look into the history of why, uh, why things have changed. The second dimension, I think, is just by looking about how people implement halacha. You can find things written in, in, in Sifrei halacha and see that people are actually practicing halacha differently, even without a halachic basis for it. Uh, one of the examples I give in, in a different book, in one of my earlier books is, in the introduction to one of my earlier books, is the question of how much time do you wait between uh, uh, meat and milk uh, meals? And we know that there, there are essentially two halachic positions on that. One is a very short time of one hour, and the other is a very lengthy period of time of six hours. Those are the two halachic opinions. But we know that there are many people who practice waiting three hours. And the question is, where did that actually come from? And when one examines the origins of that, we find that that happened as a result of changes in the way people ate meals. What time were they eating meals during the day and how much time did they actually have between, uh, between meals? And that leads to the additional question of what other uh, halachic practices have been, have been influenced by external, uh, by, uh, uh, by external uh, factors. And, and the third uh, dimension of this is, I think, my childhood. Uh, throughout my childhood, I would uh, listen in uh, to the shiurim that my father uh, gave. And he based most of his uh, shiurim on shuvot from various periods. And it was very clear from those shiurim that, that there were historical events that were affecting uh, that were affecting halacha, and that made me become extremely curious uh, as to how uh, halacha dealt with with historical events, or how 
historical events actually changed halacha uh, over over time. So I think it's a sort of a combination of all three of these uh, factors that got me really interested into uh, into this issue. Now, this book, as I mentioned earlier, is about North America, um, the immigration to North America. In again, the book is between 1850 and 1924, and we can get into those dates. But just in general, how did how is how did you get involved in this specifically to write this book? And I'll say the book is uh, about, you know, it, it goes to around seven, I want to say around 700 pages, but I think that's with, you know, the indices and, and the English summary. It's a, six, a little bit over 600 pages. So it's a big book. How did you get involved in this? Right. Well, th- that's a great question because this book uh, or the topic of this book, I came across actually by chance, completely by chance. I was, I've been working on a completely different topic uh, involving the 19th century and, and halakha in the 19th century, um, basically trying to understand how halakha dealt with uh, uh, technological advances in the 19th century. The 19th century was, was one of the greatest uh, times of change in, uh, in a technological sense, and halakha had to deal with those, with those changes. And I was gathering information uh, about that topic. And how do I gather information? I have to read through all of the Sifrei Shutim, the Shelot and Shuvot of the rabbis of the 19th uh, of the 19th century, not just looking at the indices, but actually reading one by one the Shuvot, because sometimes there are things that are hidden between the lines or in between the lines. And sometimes uh, you find things that are sort of an appendix to a Shuva, which isn't actually the topic. So I, w- I was reading through uh, the Sifrei Shuvot of the 19th century. And as I was reading through, I noticed a large number of chuvot by various rabbis that mentioned America. Now, at the time, it wasn't of great interest to me, but I said, this is interesting because it, it repeats itself again and again. And I said, okay, I'm just going to make a note to myself that uh, uh, there, there are many chuvot about America. And luckily, I also wrote down where these chuvot actually appear. Then, uh, a couple of years ago, uh, I read an interesting article about the immigration uh, to to America. The article had nothing to do with halacha, but I just found the the topic itself to be uh, to be uh, to be very interesting and fascinating. And then I read two books, two very uh, uh, important books about the immigration to America. One, uh, the World of Our Fathers by Irving Howe, which is which is a sociological history. Of the, Ameri- of the Jewish immigration to America in the, in the end of the 19th, beginning of the 20th century. And another book, which is actually fictional by Abraham Kahn called The Rise uh, of David Levinsky. And in these two books, there were uh, mentioned, they mentioned various issues that had to do with halachic problems, things that had to do with Shmirat Shabbat, things that had to do with women who were left alone. And then I said to myself, wait, this is very interesting. Let's go back to those chuvot that I came across by chance, and let's see what they're actually talking about. And I found a connection between these two historical books and the halachic chuvot. And then I said, I'm going to widen my search. And I uh, read a huge number of sifrei chuvot and halachic books and gathered, and I realized that I have uh, a real story to tell, not only a historical story, but a very interesting uh, halachic story that I that nobody's nobody in essence nobody's told uh, until now, and and that led to writing uh, to writing this uh, this particular book. 
I, I want to just ask one more thing before we delve a little bit more into the book is that I know you mentioned there's a personal connection here. You write this in the introduction in English and Hebrew. I don't know if you want to mention that here. Yeah, um, I think that in my subconscious, apparently, um, I probably, as I wrote this book, realized that I'm writing about myself, or if not myself, my my uh, my forefathers. As I mentioned before, I was born in Boston. My father was born in New York. My grandfather was born in New York. But my great-grandfather immigrated to the United States in the last decade of the 19th century uh, from a town named Stree uh, in, uh, in the Ukraine. And the little information that I have uh, about him comes from snippets of papers and booklets that were in a little box shoved on some, some shelf in my parents' house for many, many years. And when I opened the box, uh, I realized uh, that uh, he's telling a story as well. My great-grandfather, as I said, immigrated on his own, like many immigrants. He came to New York penniless. Uh, he started out in a low position in a fruit in an import-export of fruits and vegetables on the Lower East Side. And then he worked his way up in the business world to become an insurance broker and became actually quite prosperous and enabled his family to buy uh, real estate both in New York and in other, and in other places. So this is sort of the, the classic story of the movement of an immigrant uh, from uh, Europe to the United States. But it's not only on the economic side, it's also on the, on the Jewish identity side. So despite the fact that he immigrated, uh, he fought quite vigorously uh, to make sure that both he and his children and then his grandchildren would remain uh, 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 from Jews, Jews who are, uh, who are practicing halakha, uh, um, even though they immigrated to the United States with all the problems uh, involved. So I found it interesting that after I had written the book, I really understood that, that, that I had written a book uh, uh, describing not only the halakha, but also some of my own personal, uh, personal history. Okay, now the book, as, as mentioned, uh, the time period that you looked at historically and the chuvas and, and those things are, it's from 1850 to 1924. Uh, how did you pick those years specifically? Yeah, uh, there, there's a difference of opinion among scholars as to when uh, the mass immigration started, uh, the Jewish mass immigration started from Eastern Europe to the United States. Uh, there are some who ascribe uh, to the opinion that you have to look at events that occurred in Europe, in Eastern Europe, and based on those events, uh, decide when that mass immigration started. So one opinion is that in 1881, Tsar uh, uh, Nikolai II of, of Russia was murdered, and there were massive riots and pogroms against the Jews. And there are some who say that that is what, what started the mass immigration to America. Another opinion is that um, there was an agricultural failure in the Ukraine in the late uh, 1860s, and that caused famine and disease, uh, both among the Jewish population and the Gentile population. But the Jewish population, which was based mainly on that agriculture, had to move away. Some moved to the cities in Poland, but others moved to, uh, to North America. There are others who say, no, let's just look at the numbers. And we have to understand this mass immigration was the greatest movement of, uh, of people in, 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 in a peacetime period. Over 2 million Jews 
uh, immigrated from Eastern Europe to America uh, in the end of the 19th, beginning of the 20th century. But over 70% of them came to America after 1900. So there's some who say that the mass immigration started as late as 1900. But I don't even go, I don't go either way. What I do is I try and look at, at what the, the rabbis were doing and when are there, when are there questions being asked and, and answers being given about problems that arise from that immigration. And we can find that earlier than 1850s, uh, both the Maram Sheik and Rabbi Natanzon and the son of the Khatam Sofer, Rabbi, Shmuel, Rabbi Avram Shmuel Sofer, are answering questions that relate to the immigration to America. So clearly this was an issue uh, that was uh, uh, being dealt with as early as 1850. So I look at, at the period starting in 1850. 19, the end of the period of immigration is easier uh, to define uh, because the American Congress in 1924 passed the Immigration Act, which in essence stopped all of the Jewish immigration or almost all of the Jewish immigration uh, from, uh, from Eastern Europe. So uh, the end of the period is easy to define 1924, and I just start when the halachic authorities start dealing with this issue, which is somewhere around uh, 18, 1850. Okay, now, uh, as can be expected, or as some listeners may know, there are, are, you know, especially were a lot of issues, halachic issues raised by this immigration, especially as a lot of men went, left their wives and families behind. You even have some instances of women going the opposite, but there was lots of different things going on. There was no telephone, no internet, it was things with the, life was very different. And this led to a lot of halachic issues. So let's give a general overview of the halachic issues caused by the migration from Europe to America. Yeah, I think, I think we can define them into two broad categories. One is social issues, and the other is issue, issues related to agunot, to women who are left, left alone without a solution uh, to their uh, to their predicament. The social issues were a result mainly of the clash of values and culture between uh, Eastern Europe and the society that they that they uh, uh, came to in America. These problems were related to issues of uh, shmirat mitzvot, Shabbat, kashrut, adjusting to the American uh, uh, culture and ethics. Issues regarding uh, uh, people's uh, business, could they charge interest or not charge interest, and various other issues that had to do uh, with how people found, uh, found employment. The other category is issues related to, uh, to Aguna. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, in many, many cases, uh, uh, the immigration was done gradually. Usually the head of the, uh, head of the household, the husband, the father, immigrated first to America, usually alone, uh, to, set, to, to, to set things up, uh, to find a job, to set himself up uh, economically, and then send money uh, for, the rest, uh, for the rest of the family. Now, uh, this had the potential uh, for the women to be left uh, as agunot, either uh, intentionally or, or by chance. We have to understand that when one immigrated to America, we're talking about the travel of about 2,000 kilometers overland in Europe, cross a number of borders, and then crossing the Atlantic to get to, uh, to, uh, to North America, usually to New York, not only, but to the Eastern seaboard. And, and at times, ships sank on the way, and women were left 
in, in, in limbo without knowing what actually happened to their husbands. But even if the husband reached America, sometimes they just disappeared. They may, may have disappeared because they had an accident in their work, on their job. They may have disappeared because they decided that they don't want to have anything more to do with the wife and the family that they left behind uh, in, uh, in Europe. And therefore, we find many, many cases of women who were left abandoned and needed to resolve uh, their, their terrible plight. They were left alone uh, uh, in Eastern Europe, unprotected and without any source uh, of income. And the estimates uh, made by historians about the number of women uh, who were left as, uh, as agunot is that roughly 100,000 women uh, over a time period of about 40 years, which is a huge number uh, uh, of, uh, of women, a huge number of cases that the rabbis had to uh, had to deal with. So this was no longer a problem of one particular or individual uh, woman, but it was a broad crisis of a magnitude uh, that that had never been experienced before in Jewish uh, in Jewish history. And when one looks at how the rabbis dealt with it, it's clear that the halachic authorities uh, identified uh, the scope of the problem. And they tried to introduce, as much as they uh, uh, could, innovative solutions that at, at times actually changed uh, the accepted halachic practice, sometimes a halachic practice that has been in place from the times of the Gemara. In other words, there, there are halachot that we see that were changed in order to resolve some of these issues, despite accepted practice for over almost 2,000 uh, 2, years. Yeah, and there's some really uh, innovative uh, and very interesting approaches taken by various Rabbanim and Shalza Shuvas, and we'll get to that. I'm sure specific stories, many really interesting specific stories related here. Uh, you mentioned the uh, ship sinking at sea. I know there's specifically the SS Simbria, SS LV, I don't know if they did those specific stories uh, and halakhic questions that arose from those uh, tragedies at sea. Um, okay, so a as you said, a lot of times the men left alone and then this was done i don't, I don't know if you, you emphasize this why this was done that they left specifically it was in order to start getting things started getting making money some money back home yeah there there, there the main reason was economic in other words we find again and again in the chuvot themselves in other words one can look at the star the uh, historians who describe this but even when one looks at the chuvot themselves and you see the opening statement of the chuva where where the where the case is described uh, the description is of a person who could not find or gainful employment in their local town or village or city and decided to immigrate to, uh, to America. And one, again, one has to understand when, when such a decision is made, it means that people thought that this was a viable alternative, even though the distance was, uh, was huge. But the main reason that, that uh, the men immigrated to America was economic. There were other reasons. There were people who left for personal reasons. They no longer wanted to have anything to do with their wife. And this was the way they found a solution to, uh, to run away. There were cases where the husband, uh, for example, was living in Austria, but he had uh, Polish citizenship and the Austrian authorities uh, wanted to uh, uh, send him back to Poland where he might have to go to the army, etc. So they ran away. To America, there were other reasons uh, as well, but the main, 
the main thrust or the main reason behind uh, the immigration to America, both by women, by men, and sometimes women who went first, uh, was was an economic reason more than anything else. Okay, so we can dive in a little bit more. I think the specific issues presented. I mean, as you mentioned, there was the two, you know, the two broad general issues. And I, I should mention, Aguna, you have on the front cover. There's a picture of an older woman uh, contemplating a thought. I don't know if you want to talk about the cover, but that's obviously supposed to be represented Aguna. The cover, the cover of the of the uh, of the book has a picture, which is uh, a painting printed painted by a, uh, a painter from Belarus in the beginning of the 20th century, a painter by the name of Yuda Penn, and the name of the painting is a letter from America. Okay, and what she's contemplating in that letter, we don't know, but we can just imagine. We can just imagine. Okay, so. A number of issues arise. You said the more social issues. We can start with those before delving into Iguna. Um, as you put it, there's is a between two worlds when the, the Jews arrived in America. And then that's going to get into Kashrus, making a living. Obviously, the famous or infamous Shabbos, Shmir, Shabbos, Chil, Shabbos, working on Shabbos issue. So we can get that. So if you want to just start off talking about it, and you can mention the very specific um Shalos Vachuvas or any very specific stories. I, I want to just say something about the book for a second before I let you answer the question. Is that the book you did very interesting? Is that so? We have kind of throughout the chapters, whenever you're quoting the source, the original source, whether that's the Chuva or, or other other cases here, it's uh, Eisenstein, J.D. Eisenstein. You bring in a whole, you kind of bring like a block quote in the middle. So you have your kind of writing the book, and then you bring the the source uh, with a block quote. I guess is the best way to explain it. So people who are reading the book can kind of jump around and kind of skip the source if they wish. But the nice thing is, other than just bringing the source and say, go look over there, and someone would have to have a computer or they would have to have all this forum, they can actually read the source inside, which is a very nice thing. But, uh, okay, I'll let you answer the question. I just wanted to emphasize that already. Listeners understand. Okay. Thank you. Uh, about the social issues. The truth of the matter is that the social issues uh, began even before the immigrants arrived on American shores. There's an interesting tshuva of uh, Rabbi Dov Levin from the Ukraine who happened to come to the ports in northern Germany. Uh, he doesn't explain what he was doing there. He may have been, uh, been on his way to America, but there's no, no evidence that he actually came to America. But he came to the ports uh, in, in northern Germany, and he met the immigrants who were waiting to get on a ship to get to uh, to America. And they were uh, extremely upset and frustrated. And the reason was that apparently the ships to America left uh, the ports in Germany twice a week, on Tuesdays and on Shabbat. And uh, those immigrants who were Shomer Shabbat and who wanted to keep their heritage were required to get on the ship on Shabbat, which is against accepted halachic norms. According to the halacha, you're not allowed to get on the to get on a ship on Shabbat unless you were on the ship on Friday before, etc. I don't want to get into the halachic details of it. But these people found themselves in a very uh, uh, unfortunate circumstance where they had to, uh, for the first time in their lives, actually be mechalal Shabbat, even Shabbat, even though they weren't weren't interested in, weren't interested in doing that. And Rabbi Dov Levine discusses the issue and in the end gives them a heter to do it. Again, I don't want to go into the into the intricacies of, of the halacha on this, in this, on this issue, 
but it's clear from his tshuva that he understands that there's no choice. In other words, the, the alternative is to tell these people either not to immigrate or wait for another boat or another ship, but these people are penniless. They can't afford to buy another ticket, uh, etc. And even when they got on the ship itself, they ran into issues that they've never encountered before. You had men and women mingling together on the ship. You had people who were making fun of the of the Jews uh, who were putting on talit and tefillin in the morning. They had issues of getting kosher food on the ship. How would you get food? I mean, again, it's not a flight like we take today, which is 10 or 11 hour flight. We're talking about a, a trip that takes between 10 and 14 days uh, overseas. And and there were people, there were Jews on the ship who, who claimed that since America is the land of the free, uh, we no longer have to ascribe to Jewish uh, uh, religion or halacha, etc. And then they arrived in America. And when they arrived in America, they discovered that there they also had a, a, a big surprise or a clash of values. There were stories about people who were trying to build a sukkah and sukkot, and people were throwing stones at them and making fun of them, uh, etc. But I think there are two major, major issues that they had to face. The first was the issue of kashur. How do you get kosher food? How do you get kosher meat? Especially those immigrants who weren't living in the major cities. I mean, in, in New York, in in, in Baltimore, uh, and in uh, and other major cities uh, in eastern United States, there was essentially no problem of getting uh, of getting kosher uh, kosher meat. But when you left those major cities, when you out, went out into the Midwest or into the south, southern United States, uh, uh, it was much more difficult. And there are a number of chuvot, again, which try and balance between uh, the various issues and values uh, which describe um, people who want to eat kosher food, they want kosher meat, but the only shochet that's available is not Shomer Shabbat. And then the question arises, can you rely on this person's shrita? And again, if this question was asked 50 years before in Europe, the answer would have been clear. The answer would have been no, you cannot rely on this person's uh, shrita. But here the rabbinical authorities understood that you have to sort of balance out between something good and something bad. On the one hand, uh, you want to rely on this. If you don't rely on this person's shita, then what's going to happen is that people either are not going to be eating meat, or in the end, what they'll turn out doing is eating non-kosher meat. So uh, most of those who dealt with this issue decided to enable uh, one to rely on that shita, assuming that there's some sort of uh, um, person who can oversee what he's doing, and assuming that this shita is on a on a on a personal basis and not somebody who's running a, a slaughterhouse. But I think the biggest problem facing the immigrants uh, uh, coming to the United States was the issue of, uh, of Shmirat Shabbat. In general, in the 19th century, the, pro the issue of Shmirat Shabbat was not new. Uh, people in Europe were leaving their, their ancestral customs uh, for tens of years, and the rabbis were fighting that. But here in the United States, for the first time in Jewish history, people were forced to work on Shabbat. People were forced to be Mechalalei Shabbat 
even though uh, uh, they would have preferred not to do so. There are many, many stories that the rabbis uh, documented about people who wanted uh, to keep Shabbat, but were not able to do so. Uh, one of them is a story by, that, that's written by Rabbi Gedalia Silverstone, uh, originally from Lithuania, and then he immigrated to, uh, to America. And he describes a, a horrible story about a tailor who comes with his family to America and wants to, guide, to, to find a job, and he, and he gets a job. And on Friday, he, he says, I'm going home. And, and the foreman asks him, where are you going? And he says, well, it's Friday afternoon and, and, and it's Shabbat. And he says, okay, you can go home, but don't come back on Sunday. And he says, okay, he goes home and he, decide, and he tries to get another job and he's not able to. And he goes into a description of how this person sells all of his belongings and loses his, loses his ability to pay rent. And his family's out on the street in the winter and they're starving. And in the end, this tailor succumbs to the economic pressure and goes to work uh, on, on, uh, on Shabbat. And this is a story which is typical of many, many immigrants uh, who had to find employment in, uh, uh, in, in America. And as a result of that, we find uh, that a large proportion of the population was uh, uh, no longer Shomer Shabbat in the way that, that, that they were certainly in Europe or in the way that, that the rabbis uh, uh, expected. Now, the, the, the rabbinical authorities in, in Europe were aware of what was going on in America. In other words, they were aware that many of the immigrants uh, were no longer uh, Shomer Shabbat. But um, they believed uh, that the reasons for this, and one of the people who, one of the rabbis who led this opinion was the, uh, was the Hafez Chaim. They believed that the reason that uh, the immigrants were no longer Shomer Shabbat was because of issues due to comfort, lack of knowledge, peer pressure, trying to make a, a better living or have a, a higher income. And they weren't really aware of the uh, social issues and the economic issues that the immigrants were, uh, were facing. Uh, on the other hand, the American rabbis were well aware of this. There are many chuvot of, of uh, American rabbis who understand or, or who express an understanding of what's, uh, of what's going on. Just to give one example, uh, Rabbi Shmuel Avigdor Avramson, who came from Latvia uh, to America, was asked whether or not a Kohen, who's not Shomer Shabbat, who's Mechaler Shabbat, can do Birkat Kohanim, go up to the Duchan on, on, in, in America, in Israel, it's every day, but in, 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 in America, on Yantav. Uh, can he can he go up to the Duchan even even if he's even if he's Mechaler Shabbat? And he, Rabbi Rabbi Abramson was aware of what the Chafetz Chaim said about this. If you open up the Mishnah Brura about this issue, the Chafetz Chaim says clearly that Mechaler Shabbat b'Farhesia cannot Kohen who's Mechaler Shabbat b'Farhesia cannot go up to the Duchan. And Rabbi Abramson has a great difficulty in accepting that opinion. And he voices something that, that's very rare. He says, and he lived in the time of the Chafetz Chaim, so he, he's not talking about something about, that happened in the past. He's talking about something that's going on in the present. And he says that he's, he, 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 he values the Chafetz Chaim's opinion, but he, clearly the Chafetz Chaim never visited America 
and never saw the social issues uh, that uh, the American Jewish population is facing and the rabbis are facing, and had the Chafetz Chaim come to America, he surely would have said that that a that a uh, a Kohen Mechalel Shabbat can can do Birkat Kohanim, and the rabbis were aware of the fact that that by telling these people that they couldn't, they would further push them away from their Jewish heritage rather than 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 uh, than help them be at least in some part part of part of the Jewish uh, Jewish uh, society. And what's interesting is that in America. Uh, at least in the first half of the uh, of the 19th, of the 20th century, uh, you have a group of people that some sociolo- sociologists call non-practicing Orthodox Jews. In other words, people who identify with uh, Orthodoxy, but on the other hand, they're not necessarily practicing Jews. They don't necessarily they're not necessarily Shomer Shabbat, not necessarily Shomer Kashrut. But when they go to a to a bet knesset or a shul on 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 Shabbat or on, on Yom Tov, they'll go to an Orthodox synagogue rather to a, than to a conservative or uh, or a Reform uh, synagogue. And these types of people um, uh, were joining uh, Jewish organizations in the in the in the first two decades of the 20th century. Both the Mizrahi and the Agudat Israel were expanding quite dramatically, both in America and in uh, and in Eastern Europe. But many of their members, interestingly enough, were not Shomer Shabbat. Even the whole purpose of the organizations was to strengthen Shmirat Shabbat in the Jewish in Jewish society, and that create created tension within the organizations. How can you have people donating money? How can you have people who are officials in 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 an organization which is striving to strengthen uh, uh, Shmirat Shabbat when you have people who are acting? Uh, contrary to what the organization is trying to do. And uh, Rabbi Chaim Hirshenzon, who came from Israel to to America, um, uh, raised novel approaches and arguments to try and explain why all of the groups of Jewish society are in essence, are all kosher Jews, if we can can, uh, say it in that way. And he challenged accepted uh, uh, halachic norms and practices. For example, he ruled that there is no halachic basis uh, to refrain from drinking wine that was touched by Mahalal Shabbat, which if you would ask almost any rabbi today would say, well, that's accepted halachic uh, uh, norm. Um, there are various issues about what exactly is a Mahalal Shabbat and which wine, etc. But he said that halachically there is no basis for that to try and, and soothe over the tensions that existed between the various parts of uh, uh, parts of the uh, of the population. So, so I think the the, the social issues or the problems that that the Jews faced uh, when they arrived in America were, on the one hand, very surprising for them, and I think they didn't expect this to uh, uh, to be part of the issues that they faced. And the rabbis here in in America uh, uh, were very attentive uh, to the issues and the problems that the that the population was facing. So that's that's from that's from the the social side, but the most of the book and most of the issues that were raised had to do with agunot, with women who were. 
Yeah, I want to just jump in. Before before we move on to Aguna, I want to jump in with a, a couple of a brief comments. So first, you mentioned that it's an uh, interesting, really interesting, Rabbi Silverstone. So that's on page 97, uh, 98 in the book. The Kisefer was called Pinim Yakarim. So that's uh, something of interest in there. And, and the Chavetz Chaim, you mentioned the Chavetz Chaim at length. He has a whole Sefer, Nidche Yisrael, uh, written about this, which you discussed at length. Like I said, you go through, you know, you kind of mentioned your own thing, and you have the primary source. You have Chuvas uh, from Chaim Berlin. And then, like you said, you have the American, you know, you know, the people actually there, the Rabbanim that are actually there and discussing the uh, the issues uh, going on there, actually. Okay, now you can continue with the Aguna. I just wanted to put that in before okay. we move on to that. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Um, okay, the, the issue of Agunot, as, as I said before, was a major, was the major issue. You had at least 100,000 women uh, who were left uh, in solitude without their husband, either because their husband uh, was lost somewhere or decided to disappear. Um, and, and the issue started, of course, with ships that went down in the Atlantic. Um, I'll mention a number of, of outstanding cases, um, both from, from the tragedies themselves and from a halachic point of view. The first is a ship called the SS Cimbria. The SS Cimbria was a ship that was on the line from Hamburg to New York uh, for a number of years. And on the 17th of January, uh, 1883, uh, the ship went down um, in the North Sea, north of, uh, north of Germany. Uh, by the way, how do I know that, that this is a ship that went down? That's an interesting issue in and of itself, uh, because the tshuva doesn't necessarily tell you which ship it is. It just says a ship went down. And then the ensuing halachic issue that was raised by that. Um, today we have databases that can, that you can search to find all of the uh, shipping tragedies or shipping uh, events that occurred in the 19th and 20th century, and you can actually pinpoint um, specific events. So I was able to to cross between the halachic issue and the actual event that occurred. And then find the find the uh, um, headline in the New York Times about the issue, which is interesting in and of itself. So the Cimbria went down in 1883. That was 430 people uh, perished as a result as a result of that uh, of that accident. That was the greatest maritime accident until that time. Today we say the Titanic, right? But then we would have said the Cimbria. That that would have been the the ship that that uh, would have been known. And uh, at first, the and there were a number of immigrants on that ship, and the women were left uh, as agunot. They, they, they had to know whether they could remarry uh, or not. And at first, Rabbi Joshua Siegel, who immigrated from Poland to America, uh, decided that without specific testimony that the, the husbands were on the ship and someone who actually saw them drowning he would not allow the women to, uh, uh, to, re to remarry. And as a result of that, these women were left as agunot for uh, over eight years. And then they petitioned the Gdolador. They asked Yitzhak Elchanan Spector, Yitzhak Elchanan, uh, to reinvestigate their case, or relook at their case. And Yitzhak Elchanan, uh, in general, had many, many uh, innovations regarding questions of ships going down. But in this particular case, he ruled 
that one could rely on the ship's passenger list. In other words, these people were listed as uh, people who were on the boat. And the fact that there was a lack of communication between the husbands and their family after the ship went down, and given the fact that in what he called modern times, where there is a telegraph and there are newspapers, so people had ample opportunity to get in touch with their family, the fact that they didn't get in touch with their family was uh, a testimony to the fact that uh, uh, that these people had actually perished and died, and he enabled the women uh, to remarry. What's also very interesting about his tshuva is in one of the opening statements, he praises uh, the widows for uh, uh, remaining uh, uh, or deciding to, to, to wait for a halachic decision rather than making a decision on their own. Because there were women who decided after eight or nine years, I'm fed up with this and I'm going to get remarried without permission of the rabbis. But he praised these women uh, uh, for for waiting for a halachic a halachic decision. Uh, another uh, another case uh, is a a sh not a ship that went down, but rather an immigrant who had immigrated to America uh, was on his way back to Europe in uh, July of 1889. This particular person's name is Asher Weinstein. Uh, he fell off the ship on his way to uh, back to Europe. He had immigrated to America and he started out as an apprentice in a real estate agency. And then he just started to purchase real estate in New York and became quite affluent. But apparently the pressure from his work um, was uh, uh, had a detrimental impact on his health. So he was on his way back to Europe to get uh, uh, rest and relaxation from his, from his business. But he fell off the ship. Why he fell off the ship is not exactly clear. And again, the question was, uh, could we allow his wife uh, to, uh, to remarry? And in this case, uh, Rabbi Yosef Eliyahu Fried, who immigrated to America and was the rabbi of Kehala Dat Yishun in New York, uh, decided that the woman could remarry. And he made two, I think, very important statements in his tshuva. One is that halacha uh, has to, cannot contradict common sense. If it makes sense that the person, you saw the person falling off the ship, and it makes sense that he died as a result of that, one can rely, rely on that. And the second, which I think is, is even more amazing, is that he said when we discuss the issue of agunot, we have to take into consideration the specific circumstances, circumstances of each individual woman. So that if we're talking about a, a young woman who has the opportunity to get remarried and start a new family, we have to be more lenient than if we were talking about an older an older woman who doesn't have that prospect, which is uh, interesting in and of it in and of itself. He sent his tshuva again to the Gdol Adot of Yitzhak El Khanan, uh, uh, who approved of his uh, of his ruling. And again, what I think is very interesting is that Yitzhak El Khanan gave his ruling only nine months after the event actually occurred. So you can see that the rabbis uh, are interested in moving as fast as possible to find a resolution to these issues rather than uh, procrastinating. Um, the, the third case I want to mention is the SS Elba. The SS Elba went down in January of 1885. 
here also was talking, there, there was an immigrant on his way back to Europe. In this case, the person's name was Moshe Leistein. He was a hat maker, and he was going back to his hometown in Poland to expand his business, and the ship went down. And in, in the Chuvav of Shalom Mordechai Shvadron, he mentions ideas proposed by uh, Rabbi Avram Yoel Abelson, who proposed that modern shipping completely changes the halachic issues regarding uh, uh, ships that sink or people who drown in the ocean. He claimed that the fact that there are modern, there's modern navigation, meaning that ships no longer hug the shores of the ocean, but rather cross the ocean in the middle, or the fact that there are lifeboats on the ship, completely changed the way we have to look at issues regarding Maim Shen Laim Sof, or issues of, of, of water and how people drown in the water, and therefore create a situation where most of the women uh, whose husbands drown in the ocean or supposedly drowned in the ocean, one would enable them to, uh, uh, to remarry. And when, we, when, I, when one looks at the various chuvot regarding uh, uh, ships that went down, one can find over 15 fundamental uh, halachic innovations that changed halacha, that enabled women to, uh, uh, to, uh, to remarry. So that's just one, one issue that, that, that people faced. So uh, some other issues related to this, before we get into the general issue, are uh, you, you know, identification issues of identifying those, and then uh, a, a, techn a technological advance. You mentioned the technology of the time, so photography, being able to use pictures. Right. So, so the fact that ships went down was just one of the problems. Another issue was what to do when people just disappeared. People, you, you had a husband who went to America, had a job, and either you never heard from him again, or you heard that in, at, his, at his place of employment, uh, there was an accident. There's, there's a case uh, uh, dealt with by, by Rabbi Mordechai Yudale Winkler of an explosion uh, in a mine shaft in Scottsdale near Pittsburgh uh, in Pennsylvania. And there were hundreds of people who were killed in those, in those mines. And there happened to be one immigrant, one Jewish immigrant uh, who was working in the mines. And the wife was back in Europe and she went to Rabbi Winkler and said, I have a letter from my husband saying that this is where I work and I've never heard from him again after this, this, uh, this accident. And Rabbi Winkler had nothing to, nothing to base himself on except for the wife's testimony. And he decided that despite that he had no other information, he would, based on that, enable uh, the wife to remarry. And, and the rabbis had to deal with other issues. Uh, for example, can we rely on the testimony of government officials or of the rail companies? And what do we do with, uh, with people uh, who are giving testimony and they are not Shomer Shabbat? And what about women? Can a woman testify that she saw the husband uh, 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 die or was buried, uh, etc.? And as you mentioned, there were technological advances as well. In, in the middle of the 19th century, photography was introduced to the world. Today, we take it for granted that we can take a picture of anything. But at that time, that was, that was a great novelty. And uh, Rabbi Tzvi Hirsch Orenstein uh, from Galicia was the first rabbi uh, to approve the utilization of photography 
to identify uh, to identify uh, a corpse. And this was later adopted by many of the leading poskim of the time, Rabbi Yitzhak Elchanan, uh, the Netziv, Rabbi Naftali Tzvi Yehuda Berlin, Rabbi Shvadron, and others all adopted uh, the ability to identify a corpse based on uh, on a picture taken, whether it's identifying the picture itself or comparing one picture uh, to another. And we can just imagine uh, that given the great distance between America and Europe, how that facilitated the ability uh, to identify the husband who had uh, who had disappeared who had disappeared. So in general, uh, 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 the rabbis found various uh, innovative ways to try and overcome the problems uh, of uh, identifying or proving uh, uh, the fact that the husband had had uh, had died one way one way or the other. By the way, you we've mentioned Shalom Mordechai Shodron a bunch of times, referring to the Marsham, for those right. uh, not, not familiar. Um, okay, so now we get into, you know, I said the general issue of Aguna, but we talked already a bunch about Aguna at sea, but in general, as you titled uh, the chapter, Mokum Egun Godla, I think in English you wrote, Woman in Limbo. So, uh, and, and this becomes, in general, like you said, there Aguna, but, but more than that, further, we have Gitin, and in cases where the husband is not lost, but when we right. still have issues with Gitin, getting the Gitin from America to Europe, as you mentioned, it's over 2,000 kilometers away, letters are distorted, there are mistakes in them, this happens you know, all the time, but in document mistake regarding names, mistakes in towns and cities, but they didn't, we'll get this, I'll let you start off you know, with the general background and then issues with Gitin. Right, the, the, the biggest problem uh, of the Agunot was was the issue of divorce of getting a get, um, and it, it, it had a number of had a number of levels. The first was just finding the husband to get to get a divorce, and then getting the get from the husband for, for him to decide to give a get, and then getting the get delivered uh, uh, back to Eastern Europe. So just to tell a short story uh, about one woman uh, whose husband left her, and she hadn't heard from him uh, for a number of years. And she finally was able to locate him in New York. How she was able to do that is not exactly clear. But she had a relative who was traveling to New York. So she asked the relative to arrange a get. And he met the husband. And he persuaded the husband to give a get. And the relative wrote back to the wife that he's arranged everything and he's coming back. And he'll be the shaliach for the get. And the relative comes back to Europe. And the woman, you can just imagine her waiting at the train station or at the docks, waiting for the get. And the relative comes, and he doesn't have the get. And she asks him, Where, where's the get? And he said, well, I'm sorry, the husband wasn't willing to pay the rabbi, the sofer, one dollar, which was the price of the get. And therefore, the rabbi didn't release the, the document. Of course, the relative himself didn't feel any obligation in and of himself to pay the dollar, to pay that dollar uh, uh, himself. So you can just imagine the problems that women were facing when they when they tried to get uh, to get the get. But even when they were finally delivered from America, uh, they sometimes came with errors that accepted halachic practice up until that period would have deemed them as problematic and probably would cause the get to be uh, unacceptable. 
And we have to remember that the problems that the, both the white, the woman faced and then, and then the rabbinical authorities faced was that it would almost be impossible uh, to get another get from, uh, from the husband, either because he had then moved on and you wouldn't be able to find him, or he just wasn't interested in being involved anymore uh, with, uh, with, his, uh, with his wife. And the errors that, uh, that they encountered were of various-ish types. There were smudged or incorrect letters. One has to remember that a get is an official document, and if there are errors in that document, it's deemed as completely unacceptable and it's worthless. So there were, there were errors in the letters or smudged letters that were coming uh, in, those, in those gitin. There were sometimes mistakes or errors in the names of the wife or the husband or their parents. In other words, saying Moshe ben Yitzchak when it was Yitzchak ben Moshe or, or other uh, more trivial problems. There were mistakes in the names of towns and villages that people lived in or the shaliach was supposed to deliver or, or, or was appointed in. And all of these issues, which weren't new, I mean, these problems had been in, in, in discussion in halacha uh, uh, for centuries. But now the problem was so great that the rabbis had to decide what to do, uh, what to do with them. And another problem that arose was, even if the get arrived and there were no problems with the get in and of itself, sometimes the villages were so small that there was no beddin to convene to deliver the get. And then what would you do if you had no, if you had no, uh, no, uh, no beddin? And, and like in the cases of, of, of identification of, of people who had disappeared or had died, also in the issue of approving gitin, we find more than 20 halachic innovations uh, that changed uh, uh, the, the, uh, the basic halachic tenets. And just to give a few, to mention a few, uh, the Marsham enabled one to write a new get even without the consent of the husband. In other words, you have a get that arrived, there are problems in it, you want to write a new one, and he approved to write a new one even without uh, going back to the husband. Of Tenenbaum assumed that the smudges that appeared in Gitin arriving from America uh, resulted from the uh, humidity on the ships that were carrying the mail, and that originally the document uh, had no uh, was correct. And he also decided that in those small towns and villages uh, uh, that you could not convene a Beitin, you could deliver the get even with one single uh, one single uh, a rabbi. And just to give one more example uh, uh, of changing the basic tenets of halacha, uh, Rabbi, Rabbi Binyamin Arya Cohen Weiss from Galicia was faced with the following problem: there was a young man who traveled to who left his wife without telling her, and he went to America and disappeared. And his father finally found him on the streets of Chicago, or and asked him to send a get to his wife. He told him, you know, you have to do the right thing. If you're not coming back and you're not calling, you're not getting your wife to come to America, you should give her a get. And the son didn't have any real objection to this, but he said that he couldn't uh, allow himself to, to have his new social, uh, his new society know that he had left a wife back in, in Europe. So he told his father, you know what, if you want, you can write the get for her. I don't want to have anything to do with this. Now, accepted halacha from the time of the Gemara 
until then was that in order to instruct one to, to write a get, it has to be an oral instruction. The sofer has to hear the husband say to write a get lishma. And here was a written instruction. The son was saying, you know, I have no problem, but I'm writing a letter that I have no problem. And in the end, Rabbi Weiss decided that in cases where you cannot physically have the husband state orally, you can rely on a written instruction. One can just imagine how that changed and facilitated uh, the ability to, uh, to get gitin from, uh, from afar. And so again and again, we see the rabbi striving to find solutions, sometimes really changing, changing accepted halachic practice in order to resolve the issues that, uh, that these women face. So you mentioned uh, Rabbi Tenenbaum, which is the famous Chuvas Divrim Al-Kiel. Uh, another one, this, this Rabbi Weiss is a state here for Avenue Kara. I was, I don't know if you mentioned uh, the Beis Yitzchak, basically the Shmelkis, who you discuss in here, you do mention that he allowed the use of the telegraph uh, to send messages and receive information. He allowed that uh, to do so, you know, even time he allowed the the get, even if they cannot approve the witnesses, the signatures. Uh, another thing about Gittin, I don't think we discussed is that you mentioned about the motivation, the rationale behind. You know, the, you mentioned some of the really unfortunate and horrible, horrific stories that we see uh, behind why they would they were trying to look for new, you know, halachic ways to be to the Gittin is because of these some horrible instances that were going on. In Europe, I guess with the wives, when the husband wasn't around. Yeah, I, I, it, the women face two serious problems uh, when when their husbands uh, left for America. The first was economic. In other words, they had nobody to support them, and until the husband actually found employment and sent money back from Europe, uh, they were left uh, without any without any income. But more problematic was that they were left uh, without anyone to protect them, physically protect them. And women were being, I'll say it politely, were being harassed, uh, both by the their Gentile neighbors and sometimes also by their Jewish neighbors. And uh, uh, even when they tried to find uh, protection in, in relatives' homes, they weren't always uh, always protected. And the rabbis were very aware of the serious nature uh, of the troubles that these women uh, uh, were facing. And there were men who were also uh, trying to find women and entice them by offering them uh, both solace and, and some sort of income and entice them in, in various ways. And the rabbis were trying to avoid all of these issues and therefore uh, try to resolve as, as, as quickly as possible and as innovatively as possible uh, the various issues that they that they face. One more Gittin issue was the status of American Rabbanim and American Bate Dinim. So even when everything was good about the Gittin, that was a whole other issue. Yeah, but the, the problem was that there were so many Gittin coming with errors uh, that it raised suspicion as to the knowledge and proficiency of uh, the Bate Dinim in, in, in America. And, and if you feel that a Beitin isn't proficient, you can't rely on, on its get, even if the get is, is 100% okay. And uh, there were various rabbis uh, uh, who dealt with this. Uh, one was uh, uh, the Beit Yitzchak, as you said, the, the, of Shmelkes, who ruled that you could approve a get even if you weren't uh, able to confirm 
the particular Beitin or those who were signed, who were, were signatories to the Get, etc. Because again, he clearly understood there was no way uh, to get another Get. Once you got one, was difficult enough to get uh, to, to receive. Uh, to to get uh, another one was almost impossible. Okay, so moving on to the next uh, major issue, which is as you termed it, uh, indirect aguna. I think which is the issue of chalitza, uh, famous uh, issue. So so in that case, when um, the husband dies and they're childless, and there's a brother unmarried, and the brother has to do yibum or Chalitza, not that we don't do Yibo. So uh, this raised a whole bunch of issues. I, I want to mention, I, maybe you'll mention it, but I, I'll let you talk about the general issue. But you have uh, the story was just, and I read the story, it was really you know, moving, a sad story. With the, with the, a couple went to the Maram Sheikh and they had they, they were potential newlyweds, as you are from Vienna. They were, they were looking to get married, but they were worried. They didn't want to get married because the brother lived in America. So what was going to happen if the husband died before they had children? So they were just nervous to get married. And it's just, I mean, that story just really sums up everything. It really, to me, like captured the, the time as much as we can really see, but then we can kind of get a, a feeling of what was going on and what people were actually feeling and what they were scared and worried about. Right, yeah. yeah. The, the whole issue of of, uh, of Khalitsa is an issue in and of itself, even before this time. I mean, there were many, many widows uh, who were extorted for money by a brother-in-law who was requested to do chalitza. He understood that he had an opportunity somehow to squeeze the woman for money. But here the problem became even more complicated. If you have a brother in America, first of all, you have to find him. Again, it's not like today where you just pick up the phone and you call him and you say, you know, we need to do this or that. You have to actually find the person somewhere in America. You don't necessarily have any contact with him. And and how are you going to find him? Now, even if you found him, you then have to convince him to do chalitza. And he may not be committed anymore to, to Yiddishkeit. He may feel that he has no connection whatsoever. And why does he want to get involved in this? But even if you found him and he's willing to do chalitza, who's going to travel 6,000 kilometers to do this in the Beijing, right? I mean, the woman doesn't have the money to do this. The brother-in-law isn't going to travel all the way back to, to, to Europe. He has a job. He, he, he doesn't have the time. And again, we're not talking about a flight that takes half a day. You go and you come back. This is, this is something that's going to take a huge amount of time. And we actually find chuvot that, that, that the brother-in-law states that I can't do this because I just don't have the, don't have the, the ability to, uh, to, to do this. And uh, therefore, the rabbis needed to find a solution. And there were three attempts to, to, to resolve this issue. And unlike the other issues of Gitin and identifying uh, uh, people who had died, etc., cetera, uh, these three attempts were not very successful, not as, a success, as successful as the others. The first is, as you mentioned, is the Maram Sheik. The Maram Sheik was approached, as you said, by a, by a couple in Vienna who wanted to get married and were worried about the fact that they had a brother, that the husband, had, the potential husband had a brother in America, and what would happen if uh, if if he died without children? And the Maram Sheik decided that they could get married uh, and have a tnai benisuin. They would make a, a a stipulation in the in in the marriage that should the husband die without children, the marriage would be uh, would be annulled. 
that in and of itself is an innovation which wasn't accepted by all of uh, the rabbinical authorities. But what's interesting to point out is that the Maharam Sheikh, when he dealt with this in the 1850s, was dealing with one case, one case brought to him by a couple in Vienna. 20 years later, Rabbi Avram Ablikatz from Slovenia deals with the same problem, but he describes it as a broad issue that many, many couples are dealing with. And the reason is, of course, that 20 years later, there were many, many more immigrants. So we're moving forward in time in immigration. But the problem with this solution, of course, is that you have to identify the problem before it occurs. In other words, either you have a brother already in America, or you know that you may face this problem. But what happens if you get married before you have a brother in America? And later the brother travels to America, and you didn't have a Tanai Benisuin, you're stuck with, with the same problem again. So the next attempt to solve the problem was perhaps decide that if the brother is no longer Shomer Shabbat, he's Mechalel Shabbat of Falhesia, you don't need Chalitza at all. And this is based on the uh, uh, halacha that a mumar does not require uh, does not require chalitza. And there was a suggestion proposed that perhaps we should define a mechalel shabbat b'farhesya as a mumar lekol Torah, and therefore wouldn't require the wife <coughs> to have chalitza uh, uh, at all. Now, uh, this this solution, of course, could have solved many many. Uh, uh, problems for many women because since many, as we said before, many of the Im- immigrants were Mechalel Shabbat, therefore this could have been a, a very broad solution. Now this was rejected both by uh, Rabbi Arya Leibush Ishovitz from the Ukraine and Rabbi Shvadron from Galicia. They both decided in the end that a Mumar is only someone who actually converted to another religion, to Christianity, to Islam, or to something of that nature. But somebody who's just negligent in his religious practices cannot be considered, cannot be considered a, a, a mumar, and therefore they rejected this as a, as a solution. The, uh, the third solution that was put forward um, was to enable the woman to appoint a shaliach for the chalitza. The Gemara states clearly that chalitza cannot be done uh, with through a messenger. But Rabbi Shlomo Hillel Frieder in the middle of the 19th century proposed that this would only relate to the Yavan, to the brother-in-law, but that the woman herself could appoint a messenger because her role in the chalitza is relatively passive, and therefore one should enable her to uh, to appoint uh, to appoint a uh, a, a messenger, um, the Marsham of Shadron at first adopted this approach, but he retracted his position under great pressure from uh, from other uh, from other rabbis, and for about twenty or twenty five years, uh, nobody actually discussed this as a a possible alternative. Uh, to resolve the issue of uh, of uh, the need for chalitza, this was raised again in the 1920s. Um, not many people know, but at the end, uh, after the sec- after the first uh, uh, World War, from about 1919 uh, to 1921, there were major pogroms in the Ukraine 
The estimates today are that about between 150,000 and 200,000 Jewish men were murdered in those in those pogroms. And that created a, a, a huge crisis of agunot because you had both people who were killed and not identified and some who were identified but died without offspring and therefore you need, they need, the women needed chalitza. And an anonymous rabbi uh, from Russia raised the issue again and asked to approve to do chalitza through uh, a, a messenger appointed by uh, by uh, by the woman, uh, he was opposed by most of the European rabbis, and the main proponent of this suggestion was uh, Rabbi Avram Aaron Yudelevich, who immigrated from Russia uh, to America. Uh, he wrote a whole book, a whole sefer about this uh, about his proposal. He sent it to the leading rabbis of his time, but most of the rabbis opposed. Uh, this proposal, and in the end, uh, the opponents prevailed. So unlike uh, the solutions that were found for Gitin that came from America or identifying people who had passed away uh, uh, either on the way to America or in America itself, the issue of Chalitza uh, was not uh, really resolved uh, in a way that could, uh, uh, could, could solve the problem for the many women uh, who needed this uh, uh, this solution? Yeah, Rabbi Yudlevich, the base of I think this this is an av v'chachma. I think I know uh, Shirley Bornstein did a whole raid bite on this in his family uh, share. I think I think the raid bite is called Once Upon a Time in America, but you can search on his uh, app and you can find the where he discussed this issue when it was learning when they were doing when the family was doing kibbutz. Um, so. Uh, yeah, there's, there's, the, you know, that that is an issue, and then there are other things throughout uh, the book. Um, so, uh, something to to mention generally speaking here is that, um, and in the index you go through in the back, there's a mafteh, but you kind of just go through each. I get you can let you talk, speak about it, but you kind of it's just a as you mafteh too, essentially. You're just saying the name of the safer. The author, and then the topic, and you just mentioned. So I don't know if there's something you know more you want to say about that generally, or if you want to talk about like we mentioned a lot of the rabbanim. Are those like the main? Is there any specific tshuva sefer or rav or rabbanim that you use that you that you came across more often than others throughout this? Yeah. Well, what's first of all, what's what's interesting is that there it's a broad a broad spectrum of rabbanim who dealt with this issue. It's not one particular rabbi. And it's not even a rabbi from one particular uh, one particular area. It's a very broad spectrum of rabbis who come up with various innovation, various innovative uh, solutions. Um, there are a number, though, who dealt with this more, and it's mainly because they're the Dolehador. I mean, it's clear that uh, that the Maharsham Rav Shvadron uh, was asked many many questions about many issues regarding the immigration to uh, uh, to America, and and similarly. Shudivrei uh, Malkiel, Rav Malkiel Tenenboim, and and Rav Shmelkes the Beit Yitzchak, the leading rabbis were asked more than other rabbis for two reasons. First of all, they were the leading rabbis, and the more complex issues were brought were brought before them. But uh, as I said before, I think what's interesting is that that 
it's it's not just those leading rabbis. It's it's a broad spectrum of rabbis uh, throughout Eastern Europe who had to deal with the, with these issues. Um, okay, now uh, another thing uh, worth mentioning here is a couple other things. First of all, her book is written in Hebrew. Yeah, I realize it's a bunch of things. So the book is the book is written in Hebrew, but you did include uh, about fifty page English introduction to the back. Is that just a literal translation of the Hebrew introduction? You wanted to just everyone to have like a summary, at least uh, for those who read just English can just access that, make it accessible to them. Yeah, I, I, since this topic talks about Ameri- immigration to America, and I assume that some of the readers uh, would have more difficulty in reading through uh, the whole Hebrew text, I decided to translate, not really transliteral, but translate uh, the introduction into English to enable uh, the English reader to get an overview of the book itself. And I actually, in the in the introduction, uh, each topic, I then say where that's written in the book itself so that you can, you can then go and read specific portions of the book or specific pages in order to see the uh, the different uh, uh, the different top the different topics so this being that this relates to america is there was was there any thought to write this in english or is there any thought to translate this book and put this book out in english uh, I've, I've been asked that question more than once um i have to admit on a personal level uh, when i talk about halacha i have great difficulty talking in english uh so so it's easier for me to write, to read and write in uh, in Hebrew. So I think sort of the compromise was to write this introduction in English. Okay. Now, what about prior research, prior work? Is there is this is this kind of the first book like this that's on you know halakhic history of the time of the immigration to America? And what books you know, just in general, what books came before yours? So how yours yeah. differed, and then what kind of you use, and where you yeah. can point That's listeners right. if they're interested in reading other stuff also. Okay. This is the first book that I know of, and I've, I've done research on this, and I've asked leading leading authorities on on the history of, 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 uh, of, of, of American Jewry. This is the first book that deals uh, in a comprehensive way of the halachic issues dealing with the immigration to America. I mean, there are many historical books about this about the immigration. And there are also books that deal on a specific level of specific topics, uh, um, even halachic topics of that, uh, uh, that were dealt with in the time of immigration. It, uh, there's a, a short article written in 1904, so during the period of immigration, uh, by, uh, by Eisenstein, who talks about chuvot up until that time, that had to do with uh, with uh, with the immigration. But he just lists the chuvot. He doesn't actually go in to the halachic uh, uh, discussions. Uh, and since then, as I said, there have been various uh, articles written about particular topics or issues, like can you turn a church into a bet knesset? Uh, issues of of kashrut of of Turkey uh, and and other specific issues, but nothing dealing across the board. With, uh, with immigration to America. There is one very important piece of work written by Professor Kimi Kaplan, uh, a book called The Orthodoxy in the New World, uh, but he deals mainly with rabbinical sermons and ideological works, 
and uh, only minimally to to halachic sources. So this book is uh, um, the first attempt to actually look at the halachic issues that resulted from from the immigration to uh, to America. Now these chuvas. So there's a lot. There is a lot of chuvas in here. Uh, very comprehensive. I'm sure there are even those that you didn't get to. But how did you do your research? How did you find these chuvas? Were you okay. is this manual computer? Yeah, what do you, you how did you do this? Okay, it's 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 a combination of computer and manual. I had to go through. I had to make sure that I read all of the or almost all of the chuvot. Uh, written in the 19th and beginning of the 20th century that had to do with immigration. And I did that in, in two ways. One is uh, by using databases. We have the Barilan database. But the Barilan database, the advantage to that is that you can do searches very easily. But it, it has the, the Sifrei Chuvat that they have are of the leading rabbis. When we talk about uh, all of the Sifrei Chuvot from, from the 19th century, I also want the more esoteric rabbis, not only the re-leading rabbis. Uh, so in order to do that, I went through the books on HebrewBooks.org. Uh, but even that wasn't uh, wasn't enough. And I used sources um, that were written during the era of, uh, of immigration. Uh, Rabbi Mary Gardon thought that the American rabbis were not proficient enough in Hilchot Giti. So he wrote uh, he published a number of compendiums on chuvot regarding Gitin, and he didn't only list them. He actually reprinted those chuvot, which enabled uh, me to find additional chuvot that you couldn't find either in the Barilan database or on HebrewBooks.org. Uh, and in addition to that, um, there's a book written by Ephraim Danyard. It was printed in 1926 called Kehilat America, which is a list of all of the Jewish books printed in America until that time. So through that, I could then go back and find those books and see what was written uh, written uh, uh, in them. And in addition to that, I used uh, original sources from immigration itself that describe that immigrants themselves described what was going on uh, during uh, during their immigration uh, to uh, to America, and. In this book, I also used some external databases. I think I mentioned that before. One was uh, a database of shipwrecks or the New York Times archive uh, to try and identify the actual events that, that occurred that are mentioned in the Chuvot uh, themselves. Okay. So the last question is something that I've been asked uh, a bunch here is how people can buy the book, especially in America. I got a copy from Beagleisen, so I don't know if he still has copies or you know can get copies. But how else someone interest can someone interested in the book get a hold of the book? All you have to do is link onto my website, uh, which I think you can post with the with the uh, with the podcast, and um, then you can order the book and it arrive efficiently. I've sent a number of copies to America, no problem. Okay, so I will link to. Perfect. So I'll link to the website in the show's notes and people can order the book uh, that right. way. Thank you. So thank you, uh, Dr. Sturmick, for joining me. Thank you very much.